Welcome to Export the Sound. I'm your host, Ben Ma. In today's episode, journalist, label leader, and all-around Asian pop expert Joselle Ko joins me to discuss British-Japanese superstar Rina Sawayama and strategies for Asian diaspora musicians in the West. Enjoy! My guest today is Joselle Ko, founder of Asian Pop Weekly and label leader at Believe Digital. When I was getting more into Mando Pop, I was thirsty for news and stories, and Asian Pop Weekly was the best place to get it, as Giselle and her team have been covering the scene diligently since 2010. And her work at Believe Digital is no less impressive, managing Malaysia and Singapore for one of the world's leading digital music companies. Um, Giselle, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you in the studio today. Thank you, Ben. I'm very glad to be able to speak with you again and very happy to be on this podcast, like your new podcast. Very exciting. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited to have you as one of the first few guests because of your amazing dedication to many different areas of, of Asian pop. Could you walk us through what it was like for you starting Asian Pop Weekly more than 10 years ago, 13 years ago? and then yeah. uh, going professional in, in Taiwan and then finally to working at Believe Digital. For sure. I think a lot of people know that like I started Asian Pop Weekly when I was still in high school. So it was totally not professional at the time. It was just because I had just moved back to Australia from Singapore for the second time. I was feeling like very detached from my roots and I wanted a way to continue to practice my Mandarin. But also I was finding that in using music to help me practice my Mandarin, I was having a lot of trouble finding relevant articles about like the artists that I liked which were in English and easy for me to digest and to find out more and that at that time I think understanding of Asian culture and like Asian pop as one of the niches in that um, was very limited at the time so I felt like I really needed to add to the space in some way and that's how Asian Pop Weekly started. I think it's kind of been it's kind of like a bloodline because I've always really I think the goal of Asian Pop Weekly still stays the same today, even 13 years ago now that we're considered a more professional platform. But I think probably around university when I started to really think about communications and media and uh, music industry as one that I wanted to really work in. I went on exchange to Taiwan in 2015. During that time, I went to a lot of gigs. I met a lot of people. And after that, I continued to use some of the connections that I had made through Asian Pop Weekly and that landed me an internship and then a part-time role at Lara's company, Lara Liang Xingyi. Um, and then after that, I just continued to expand my contacts, work with lots of different independent artists in the scene. And that's how I got to know the, the good team at Belief and became their label manager for Taiwan, their very first one. And my goal has always been to understand different markets through Asia at a kind of more local level. I would say global because I already have the gl more global perspective, but I really wanted to understand about the local perspective, which is why the move to the Singapore-Malaysia region has been really, really important for me in helping me to really discover how 
different markets work at their core what different audiences like and what the music is like at their core so that I can feed that all back into Asian Pop Weekly and you know keep growing in the direction where we are really sharing the best side of Asian music to overseas audiences in lots of different ways so yeah that's my journey so far <laughs> I hope I covered it all yeah, thanks for sharing. And it's, it's no surprise to me that you were able to move so fluidly up the ranks, so to speak, through different markets, just based on the quality and the insight of your writing. So the subject of today's episode is an artist named Rina Sawayama. So for those of y'all who have not heard of her, she is a UK-based artist of Japanese ancestry who has been making waves recently. Her latest album, Hold the Girl released last September, and she's been active professionally since I believe about 2017 when her debut EP, Rena, came out. And in between, her debut album, full length LP, was called Sawayama in 2020. So, Giselle, why did you think that Rena would be a good pick for today? And what, what does her music kind of stand for to you? Yeah, so I've been a fan of Rina for a very long time. I would say probably since the very beginning, when even before she released her EP or maybe around when she released her EP, when she was doing all of that kind of like cyber, cy- a little bit cyberpunk, but like including a bit of J-pop influences and like early 2000s music influences stuff. just found that combination so interesting there really was nothing like it at that point in time in in the pop music industry and also at that point in time there weren't as many like Asian faces as well that I could really pick out that were active in the western music space and that was something that I was really looking to in 2016 2017 she really stood out to me for that reason and I feel like she's just grown from strength to strength as over over Sawayama and of course her latest record Hold the Girl and she's kind of blossomed in so many different ways that I don't think anyone could have ever imagined and for that reason just having followed her from the beginning until now to see how her strategy has changed how her positioning has changed but at the same time she still keeps some of those core elements of her sound or like her what she stands for that's something that's really really interesting to me and recently I went to her show in Melbourne I flew all the way to Melbourne just to see her play um, it was a dream come true and when in the lead up to that actually it was really interesting for me because I was so excited I was telling everyone I'm going to see Rina Sawayama and no one knew who she was <laughs> I was like, what the hell? I asked at least like 20 people. I'm not even kidding. I asked at least 20 people. All of them didn't know who she was. And I was like, are you kidding me? She's like a superstar. She has like millions of hits on Spotify, everything. Still didn't know who I was talking about. And the ones who did, they kind of had a very significant kind of reminders of her or like points of where they're like oh yeah she's the one who like sang with Elton John or like oh yeah she's the one who she 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 had a really big hit this hell but they were all picking from different points of the Rina Sawayama timeline than me for for me like since the beginning she's been iconic so I think that really speaks to her strategy and it's just really interesting to see how she's 
carved out this niche for herself in the yeah. industry, and I think it's yeah, it's just endlessly interesting to me. You mentioned two descriptors for her that I think perfectly fit the bill: iconic and superstar. She really has a larger-than-life persona, and I imagine her live show was like even more of that. But even when you go on to some of her albums, some of the news pieces that she's done. She has a striking visual style. Her music often it has that pop star sound to it sometimes, but not in, in a bad way. is is deeply deeply personal music. Yeah. And actually, as as someone who's followed her from from the beginning, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how her songwriting style has evolved over the three major works that have come out: Rina, Sawayama, and Hold the Girl. And especially how that relates to her very personal writing style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I, I I think her songwriting is really interesting is because she actually like that is her main goal. Like I I looked through some of the previous interviews on her and things like that. Like she Rina has always been really really dedicated to writing pop bangers, which are also like authentic and like true to her from the beginning up until now. Like now she's I I read in a recent interview of hers that she just wants to see how far her song can go. It's not really even about herself. Like, oh, I want to be like the biggest superstar that is. She's just really, really interested to keep pushing the boundaries of pop music for the industry itself, and to put out messages which are different and interesting. And one thing that I think it's kind of more in line across her catalog is that she doesn't really talk about. The conventional stuff that you talk about in pop songs, she talks a lot about like introspection, about mental health, about like you know LGBT rights, about race, identity issues. She very rarely talks about like romanticism, and I think that is something that is very. It's I I feel that she probably has planned that to some extent Absolutely. to focus her identity and her sound and her message on. Something which is not conventional, like inherently not conventional. Because if you think about pop music, you think about love. Like you think about either romantic love or like lust or maybe like excite excitement. But she talks about all these niche experiences, which are still like everyone experiences them. Everyone experiences like anxiety over like who they are, which she talked about in her song "Take Me as I Am." Everyone experiences, you know, like generational trauma that she talked about in like Dynasty or like Hold the Girl. Everyone experiences like needing their friends more, like like she talked about on Chosen Family. So I、yeah. think that's the part of her songwriting which for me changed, and what has really changed over time, I think, is her dedication to diversifying herself to different genres. Like I think the pop sensibility of her sound. It stays the same in terms of the melody. Like it still is super, super inspired by like two thousands pop, like、mm. Mariah Carey, Britney、mm. Spears. I know these are like huge. Rina is a huge fan of these artists and the J-pop influence as well. It kind of has this like cheeky bubble, almost bubblegum, but not really kind of like aesthetic、mm. to it. And that is something that she throughout, especially I think more in like her first EP and the, maybe the second, the first, the first debut album, Sawayama, a little bit less in Hold the Girl. But yeah, I think those elements when it comes to her melody are still the same. But she, it 
when it comes to the production, which I I consider it, you know, a part of the songwriting process as well. That's where yeah. you've seen her really change over time. With the first EP, it was kind of like a very strong statement about how she was musically different. So very 2000s pop with J-pop and a little bit of like electronic influences in there. And then with Saoyama, you saw that she actually kept those influences probably in like the second half of the album but in the first half of the album she wanted to make another statement which is where she started to add heavy metal elements into her sound so that is something like especially on like stfu her, her, her first single from the album That was a super powerful statement about, you know, something that she was angry about, which was being like, I think she was saying that she was in a meeting with someone and they couldn't even pronounce her last name. And so basically the song is talking about like that subtle racism that that, that you see yeah. in your daily life that kind that you kind of like picks at you and picks at you and picks at you. It's not the kind that's overt per se, but I think as, you know, people of Asian heritage and having lived abroad, you can definitely relate to that as well. That's something that's different for me for me from pop, like your 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 general pop artist, because I think sometimes pop can be very constructed. It can be very intentional. But I think that Rina balances the intention and the authenticity really, really well. Maybe in the arrangement, she's gonna like move more towards like a different genre, like to shock people or to like continue to keep their attention and to continue evolving, but continue to keep her message the same. And yeah, that's my <laughs> my take on why I think she's an amazing songwriter and um, continues to surprise us at every turn. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was a really good summary of a lot of her major songs and of course you covered all all of her big releases i agree with you in the way that rina sawayama's writing encompasses an intentionality and a a directness that i think we often don't get with other pop oriented singers i wanted to dig into for the purposes of this podcast as like an international music industry focused podcast on her songwriting with her experiences as a member of the diaspora, specifically Japanese diaspora living in the UK. She was born and raised in London from the age of five, uh, calls the UK her home. It's definitely her home, her home market. But of course, there's been obstacles along the way as, as well. How do you think that being a member of the diaspora plays into more than just her songwriting, but maybe the whole arc of, of her career? And what can other diaspora musicians maybe learn about the way that she seems to be doing it really well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, it actually still comes back down to her songwriting because when you think about artists and what informs their strategy, it's about their positioning, it's about their branding. And for Rina, I think a lot of her branding comes from, has evolved towards coming from her songwriting in later years. In earlier years, because before she really went into music, she was actually a model. So I think that's where the visual aspect becomes like really, really significant. But I think as she has continued to grow as a songwriter and really master her art of storytelling, that's something that she really, really relies on the most moving forward and in telling her story. So I think she probably 
one thing that Asian diaspora musicians can learn from her is to find where their strengths are and to really, really lean into those strengths to help you to tell your story. For Rina, it was her songwriting. It's the messages that she's putting out. She, if you think about it, she's doing everything. If you think about it from like a major label, like general perspective, she's doing everything wrong. <laughs> she's doing like, she's doing everything that they would not bank on to like make a hit. She's talking so. about, yeah. she's talking about like, she's very clearly talking about, you know, racism and to a generally white population. So if you think about it in business sense, right, it doesn't make sense to like blast your majority audience, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and like, if you think about it, like when she does, she puts out a heavy metal track, that also does not really make sense, but for Rina, it works. And I think that it's because she her brand is so together by the time that she started to she signed with dirty hit and all of that she had already she already had a very very clear idea of what she wanted for herself and what direction musically she wanted to go towards and she stuck to it like she really really stuck to it and i don't know what went on behind the scenes but i'm pretty sure it's because she was so so sure of the image that she wanted to present and the direction that she wanted to go into. I'm sure she she had a lot of backlash in, in doing that, but she really, I'm sure it took a lot in order for her to release the songs that she wanted to. And I feel that she's super happy with the way that her songs were released as well. It's not like, oh, you know, this was like not produced in the way I wanted it or something like that. To add on to that question, are there any other diaspora musicians that you think have taken a different approach, but maybe equally as successfully, as opposed to, you mentioned like Rina Sawayama is leaning into her songwriting as her thing that that's setting her apart. Um, are there other musicians that you think have, have done a different approach successfully? Mm, I would say probably if we're looking at someone like, I, I think we talked about this before, but Jackson Wang, I think mm. he's also an example of someone who's like quite successful in leaning into what his strength is and his strength is his personality. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if, I don't know who, like where you've, like your understanding of him and his like direction, but obviously he was in GOT7 first in Korea. And then after that, he made a, I feel that he made a very, very calculated move to move to the mainland, like mainland industry and he didn't start by releasing like oh i want to release like a full mandarin album or something he continued to go on mainland reality shows and to build on his personality there and to really keep that engagement with the audience which i think is actually for a mainland audience is very smart because it's more long term than just releasing one song and then just leaving it and then after that he started to you know work more with 88 rising and you know released his first major debut album it was in english with them and i think that was something that was very intentional he wanted to build up the whole like he wanted to build up all the excitement towards yeah. that debut because he knew that it would be more challenging for him to release in english than in chinese so he needed to start with that early on and mm -hmm. even now i think he's just released his second his second english album and he you can see that he's still doing 
a lot of the press rounds I see him doing like all the interviews all the all the like you know youtuber shows like in the US and stuff he's really continuing to play into his personality because he is very charming he's like funny but in like a and and very very like direct as well so I think that that's for him that's his angle and just goes to show that like everyone has a different angle it's just you have to figure out which angle is going to best balance your strength and what you want to do and I think it's the same with like a lot of things right yeah so they, they they just need to find one and then like stick to it stick to their guns one thing that uh, Jackson Wong and Rina Sawayama have in common is they both are very, like, almost natively, pretty much natively fluent in English. And I think that's helped them immensely connect with their fans. They both write songs in English. And I was wondering if, if you think that is essentially required for diasporic musicians who want to go big in the West, or if maybe there's good counterexamples like for example, you mentioned Elephant Jim from Taiwan. Of course, they're a prog rock band, right? So they don't really mm-hmm. have lyrics, but maybe that's another avenue or maybe there's other examples that you can give. Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at the whole K-pop machine and how that's working, I think it's a very clear statement that you don't have to be fluent in English in order to become successful in the West. But I think it really depends on the target market you're trying to reach, what kind of investment you're looking at into that market, be it time or money. So obviously, if you have a giant machine like the Korean government behind you, then maybe there is, and and, you know, they have employed so many other vehicles to push K-pop overseas through the songwriting, through getting international producers on board, through having like the camps, the dance or like, k-pop boot camp kind of things through having like flash mobs or like all those kind of like little like marketing guerrilla tactics in different cities to try and push it overseas through having the whole k-pop like the hallyu like the entire pop culture wave you know spreading through the region working with different different embassies or different countries to really have a very coordinated effort then of course something like that would overtake the need for and artists who speak English, you know. And for yeah. Elephant Gym, as you mentioned, they're math rock band, so they don't really sing in English. I mean, they don't really sing at all at the very, very beginning. And only after they started to really amass an audience, that's when they started to like incorporate more and more like vocals, which were not necessarily in English. So I think that was probably very strategic of them as well. Yeah, I think it really depends on what niche you're in, like which kind, what kind of audience you want to target and how you want to position yourself. Because if you want to position yourself as an Asian diaspora artist in the West, then yeah, that means you might have to, you know, you would be competing with other Western musicians for attention. So that probably means that it would be really, really helpful if you could speak English. Um, But yeah, I think it really depends what audience you're reaching out to because I know like for example there's this Japanese like alt rock electro pop band called Chai and they don't speak English at all, but they have like a pretty strong PR team and they I think they toured with Mitsuki or something like that. So because there was that link with her and her heritage, I think 
that was something that really helped them to move overseas. And I think J-Rock J has a pretty niche following overseas. So I think maybe that's something that helped them in that push as well. But as to how, how they have converted that into fans in overseas markets, that is another thing that I think remains to be seen. Yeah. Gotcha. One thing that I discussed with my guest, Eric DeFontenay, in our last episode was also that diaspora audiences can help you gain a foothold in certain Western markets as well. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, mainland Chinese bands coming to play in the U.S., lots and lots of Chinese students studying in the U.S. And I think that mm -hmm. can be a really effective foothold too, yeah? Yeah, but I think that's already a different subset that you're looking towards. And, and, and if you're talking about what kinds of artists would reach out to those kinds of subsets of target audiences, it's totally different to someone like Rina Sawayama. Like, sure. for example, Jem, she is someone who is really, really strong with the Chinese diaspora. Like, if you go, if you, you know, go to one of her shows in like, for example, Melbourne, I guarantee you, like, the promoter is a mainland Chinese promoter with a mainland Chinese team who are, like, selling the show in Chinese, like, writing everything, all the promotion materials in Chinese for overseas Chinese people. And the comparing that, Yes, exactly. And then, like, <laughs> if you look, really, because I had that experience, I went to Rina's show in Melbourne, all the people who went to that show were, like, Gen Zers, which probably explains why when I asked people, like, they didn't know who she was because I was asking mm. the wrong target audience. But also, they weren't... There were quite a lot of people of colour, but not all of them were people of colour. Yeah. So I think it's... If you look at that side by side, like, Jem versus, like, Rina Sawayama, that's already a completely different audience that they're reaching out to, even though both of those audiences are overseas and it could potentially even in the same country. And I think that's just testament to the many different ways that you can target and like export your music and be successful because definitely Jem was really successful. All her shows, like a lot of her shows were sold out when she was playing in those in those regions. And Rina as well, like her shows were sold out as well, but to a different audience. Yeah. So I think the positioning is just really different and you just need to understand at the core of it, like what is your product? What is your music? What are you trying to say? what kind of audiences resonate with your music. And for Jem, because she does like really ballad stuff, like really Chinese ballad stuff, which, mm -hmm. and she has the reality, the reality show backing from like a lot of Chinese audiences. So she really leaned into that. And that was something that helped her in her, her push. And with Rina, I think, as I mentioned, she really leaned into advocating i think not only just for people of asian identity but for people of color or people who are like diverse who do not fit into your mainstream or like your conventional box that's what she advocates for and i think that that's why like even though she's talking about like my racial microaggressions and talking about like her heritage as an asian person but her comments resonate with a lot of people not just asian people because she's able to distill that into a form which is like very easily accessible because everyone can feel those minor feelings. Like everyone can want to tell someone to STFU yeah. when, when you know, they're being a, a jerk about their heritage or like their identity or how they feel. 
So yeah, I think she's done an amazing job from taking her identity and then distilling it to something that's digestible and like accessible for audiences in her particular niche. I really like your comparison of Jem and Rena and their two tours in in Australia. It sounds to me like there's a lot of potential routes that you can take, but it's important to not get stuck in a middle ground where you're not exactly sure or trying to overreach and reach multiple audiences. Would you say that's the case? Yeah, for sure. You can't have it all, especially when you don't have footing in that market. I think that Rena has been pretty I think most of her shows on her recent tour have been pretty successful. I heard that there were some which were not as successful, but overall I think it was a pretty good run for her. It's probably best if you look at Rena's strategy, she's really following kind of more that um indie pop artist strategy. Like she does go and okay, maybe towards the whole the girl album they started to really pump the gas on the promotion like bringing her to the US going on like the Jimmy Fallon show and stuff like that but leading up to that she it was very 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 focused on touring and much and i think that's something that's a strategy that i would say is considered more it's like for indie pop kind of artists it's not really really like your commercial commercial artist but i think with hold the girl she she is now at that status where she is gunning for those commercial slots just because she's at that level now. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, definitely can't overreach. You need to be really smart, especially when you're looking at your resources, how much you have to spend, what kinds of avenues you have. When you have a small amount of resources, you and even when you have a large amount of resources as well, it probably makes more sense to spend it on an area where you have a more guarantee, more guarantee of success first. Because if you spend it on somewhere where you don't have a lot of success and you don't have a lot of know-how, you don't have a lot of data, you're just kind of like pouring your money into a black hole, and then you like yes, you might get some results, but are the results? like aligned with how much you put into it, I think that they wouldn't really be as aligned. And for export, I think it's also like a trial and error process. You're putting in money not to necessarily succeed the first time, but you're putting in money to have to gain more data, to gain more like research so that the next time you can test it again, like maybe a different way and then like keep testing it and testing it until it works or until you have enough data to be like, okay, this doesn't work. Maybe I should like try something else. Yeah. So that's why I also think that it's important to not just put all your eggs in all the different baskets because then you wouldn't make any impact. You would you make very, very little impact if you try to do something like that or you would lose a lot of money. Yeah. Right. Let's, let's actually tie that back to Rina Sawayama. One thing that we <laughs> haven't covered yet actually is her impact and her presence in the Japanese market. Now, mm-hmm. of course, she has staked her claim as UK is her home market. Her songs are in English. But of course, as a famous person who is Japanese and who makes banging music, she has gotten some ears in, in Japan. I was wondering if you could tell me more about what kind of presence that she has there and maybe if you know what, what kind of strategic decisions that she's made in terms of touring in Japan, promotion in Japan, or anything of that nature. Yeah, for sure. I, To be honest, I don't know too much about the like minor details of like her, her touring and, and stuff like that in Japan. But what I can say from my perspective is that 
Japan is very much a secondary market for her. Like, I mean, like she has a whole strategy going for like the Western space. And then Japan is kind of like her strategy for Asia. And I think to start from that direction is something that's very, very smart for her. Because first of all, she's Japanese. Second of all, she can speak. She can speak Japanese. Third of all, her music is J-pop influenced. And they, Japanese audiences, technically, they do love to see people who are like international, more international. They are really, really interested in artists who have more of that international like sheen to them. So I think that it was really smart of her to first like establish herself in overseas and then start to like do her promotions in Japan. And also why I also think it's smart that she is that Japan is like the second largest domestic market in the world for music. So if she can get the Japanese market, she doesn't need the rest of Asia. So it was really smart that she honed in on that and then really like targeted Japan as as a market rather than like trying to spread herself too thin and be like, oh, I'm going to tour in like, you know, Singapore, Malaysia, like Southeast Asia, try and get all the markets, China, all of that. No, I think she understands that her, she understands her like advantage in the Japanese market. So potentially she has built a pretty like a pretty solid fan base there yet but it's she's not of like you know utada hikaru status there or something like that you know yeah. i think yeah i think that's where that's kind of where i see it going for her right now yeah it's interesting that you brought up the size of the japanese market i was looking at the figures recently and i was like surprised that the size of the recorded music markets goes usa japan uk mm-hmm. Which is crazy yeah. that, yeah. It's yeah, like- so, and it's and it's a completely different beast in itself. I would say that other than, you know, the Western market and then the ch- mainland Chinese market in um, Japan in itself is another market which is all on its own. Like, it, it's doing everything in a different logic to the way that the West is doing it. So, it does require a lot of investment. It requires a lot of strategizing. So I think it's very smart that she decided to only just focus on Japan. Because if you're only going to focus on Japan as your secondary market, that's enough. Yeah. So yeah. rather than just put put all your investment everywhere in Asia. Yeah. Giselle, as we come to a close for our interview, this is my last question from you to the audience. Well, I guess it's two questions. The first mm-hmm. is you get to shout out one Rina Sawayama song. Which one is it and why? I know that's a hard choice. Second question is even harder. You just get to shout out any any artist that you think everyone should be listening to. Just a, a nice little platform, a soapbox for you to um, talk about some, some favorite songs and artists. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, let me have a think. Okay, I think for Rina, honestly, I, I love all her songs. But I one song that has like a very deep, Meaning for me is chosen family. We don't need to share dreams or a surname. You are, you are my chosen, chosen family. So she did obviously not the Elton John version. I already loved it since before she did the version with Elton John. But I just feel like it's such a warm song that like it encompasses everybody and that is kind of like a testament to what a star she is like she's able to talk about these themes of lgbtqia identity and in such a 
warm and open way that you know you can't help but love her music and everyone who I've played that song to they're like wow I didn't know this song existed but like like I really love it so that's probably my favorite song of hers when I saw her play it when I watched I actually bought tickets to like her online show during COVID I think it was just a re- recording of her performing at the O2 but when she sang that song I like bawled <laughs> Like, I like lost it, yeah. So I think it's it's just a really, really beautiful song. So please go check it out. In terms of an artist who I think that is really cool, I would probably pick this Chinese-Dutch artist who I love. And I think you will see a lot of her if you go to our Asian Pop Weekly page. Her name is Diana Wang. And she has been one of my favorite musicians for a really, really long time now. I am such a fan of of her voice and her songwriting style and the most exciting thing about her is that if you look at her trajectory as an artist as well it's always changing so she started out super you know with a major label doing pretty pop stuff and then went back to her R&B roots started to do some more like popular R&B stuff then started working with Khalil Fong and doing like alternative R&B stuff and we actually have an interview with her, which is up now on our Everywhere and Nowhere show, which you can check out on like Spotify and iTunes. So just a little plug there. <laughs> She's one of my favorites. Thank you, Giselle. Thank it's you, It's been ben. a pleasure having you on today. And definitely all the listeners, please check out Asian Pop Weekly. Check out Everywhere and Nowhere. Giselle is all over the English language, like Asian pop scene. And so if this episode interested you and you dig more into it you will see her everywhere thank you ben it's been an honor to be here with you thank you so much for this interview i really enjoyed it thanks for listening to export the sound